It took five days for the correct winner of the 2003 Brazilian Grand Prix to be declared in one of the more bizarre endings to a Grand Prix in recent memory. The confusion summed up a chaotic weekend not helped by the weather at Interlagos as F1 was still coming to terms with controversial new rule changes and Ferrari's dominance of the previous season was quickly becoming a distant memory as it once again came away empty-handed. I'm Glenn Freeman and on this episode of Bring Back V10s we're looking back at a crazy weekend in F1 history and how Giancarlo Fisichella's Jordan eventually ended up as the race winner several days after the chequered flag fell. Joining me for this one are the show's go-to pairing when it comes to this part of the V10 era because Mark Hughes and Gary Anderson were both there that day in Brazil and they've got plenty of first-hand memories they can share with us. So Mark, we'll come to you first. You were covering this race and I assume you wrote an in-depth analysis that night that not long after it was published had the wrong winner in it. But what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think back to Brazil 2003? It did indeed have the wrong winner in it. And <laughs> we'll talk about that a little bit later. But um, first thing that comes to mind was actually the uh, the rainstorm that started a, it started quite a long time before the race uh, was due to begin. Probably hour and three quarters, two hours, but this, just this almighty storm came. And in the middle of the... Um, of that storm, I was um, I was in the media center, and I was probably a couple of rows away from my actual desk where my laptop was open. And um, all of a sudden, the uh, the rain stopped coming in through the roof direct onto my keyboard. And so, yeah, I had to quickly quickly get over there and uh, rescue it. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been writing anything. So you, you wouldn't have had any winner in it. Would have been about <laughs> as accurate as the, the final report was, I suppose. Um, yeah. Gary, <laughs> I'm not expecting you uh, you to surprise us at all here. What's your standout memory from that weekend? Well, I think actually before the race started, as Mark said, the, the, the rain was horrendously heavy. Um, and I went to Charlie Whiting, the FIA, the FIA, and convinced him they should allow us to raise the uh, the ride heights on the car because the water was so deep. Now, that was something you weren't supposed to be able to do. But, you know, as a safety as a safety uh, issue, I said I thought it would be necessary. Um, and he agreed, sent a letter out to the team to say, you know, if you if you feel it's necessary, you, you are allowed to raise the ride heights. That was it, nothing else. Um, to which Ross Braun went absolutely berserk because they had run their car on the Saturday, apparently, um, for wet conditions because the, the weather forecast for Sunday was, was horrendous. Um, so uh, I suppose that's the one thing where nobody knows what goes on behind the scenes, but that, that definitely helped us on that day. It should have helped everybody, to be honest. Um, so it was a, an equaliser, but um, I'm glad I convinced Charlie to do it because it, it made a big difference to us. Well, I take back the phrasing of my question then, because you have surprised us <laughs> with what you went for there. And I did see during my research of this episode, there were reports about a message appeared on the race control screens as well about that being allowed. And obviously, I didn't know when I was looking that up that that was because of you, Gary. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure overall everybody thanked you for that. Now, before we get going, remember to get your questions in for our season finale, which is fast approaching now where you can ask us anything to do with F1 from 1989 to 2005. Submit your questions using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter. Email BringBackV10s at the race.com 
or you can leave us a five-star podcast review and submit a question there. And if you'd like to get early access to new episodes and listen to them ad-free, as well as getting exclusive monthly Ask Gary Anderson podcasts and many other benefits, check out the Race Members Club. Head to the-race.com forward slash members club to find out more and to sign up. But let's get back to Brazil 2003. Heading into the weekend, there was much talk about Ferrari. After its dominance in 2002, the prancing horse didn't win either of the first two races of the following season. The team was still using its 2002 car at this point while it worked on the 2003 machine in testing. And although it hadn't won, Ferrari felt... That didn't represent how fast the old car still was. Michael Schumacher and Rubens Barrichello ran 1-2 in the early part of the Australian Grand Prix. Then Barrichello crashed out in damp conditions and Schumacher ended up having a scrappy race to fourth. And in Malaysia, Schumacher clumsily wiped out Jarno Trulli at the start. All of the major players at Ferrari were keen to point out that they'd never expected to carry on their dominance from 2002. And both drivers repeatedly used the phrase, not a crisis, when talking about the early races. Schumacher said, we had the quickest car in Melbourne and Sepang, which showed there was no need to rush in the 2003 car. And Ross Braun said, we've sat down and talked about it. and We've reminded the guys about 97, 98, 99, those years where we had to fight very hard for every race that we won. And perhaps this is just one of those years. We all know we can do it. We just need to remind ourselves what it was like and make sure we do it again. Now, Mark, I think it is fair to say Ferrari could have quite easily won both of those opening races. But how important was it, perhaps for F1 in general, that off the back of 2002, Ferrari was off to a rocky start the next year? It was a refreshingly different start of the season, I suppose. But I I don't think anybody was... Under any real illusions, Ferrari was still the overwhelming favourite and it was expected that the new car, when it was finally raced, would be the car to beat, maybe even taking up the dominance where they'd left off in 02. What was surprising really was that it was McLaren rather than Williams BMW which had taken the fullest advantage of Ferrari's problems in those early races because that was last year's car too. So yeah, it was um, it was an unusual start. Everything still seemed to be up in the air, and we're waiting for a pattern to emerge. We we, we knew that this wasn't really um, probably fully representative. As you mentioned there, McLaren was the one out front in both championships, with Kimi Raikkonen and David Coulthard having won a race each and sitting first and second in the standings in the team's updated 2002 car, the MP4 17D. Unsurprisingly, McLaren was reveling in Ferrari having a sticky start to the year. Ron Dennis said, they've got some pressure now and under pressure, everybody makes mistakes. Coulthard said, it's two races and two mistakes for Michael. This just confirms what we have all said. If you put him under pressure, he does make mistakes. We need to keep doing that. Michael has got plenty, uh, has got to play catch up now and he is in an unusual situation, but you never underestimate him. Just because he is having problems now, it doesn't mean he won't bounce back, which is obviously very accurate based on who won the championship in this season. At Williams, Juan Pablo Montoya stuck the boot in on Schumacher as well, saying if everyone keeps the pressure on him, he will make mistakes. He has had it easy for the past two years, but now we have proved he can be beaten. People make mistakes and they start to crack under pressure. Schumacher was asked by the German media about the fact that it was unusual for him to make mistakes. 
And uh, Michael's slightly cryptic response was to say that making mistakes was not unusual for human beings. And I think over the years, we've perhaps debated whether Michael was of the same species as the rest of us. But Gary, were all those comments from the McLaren and Williams sides of the equation, was that just trying to ramp up the pressure on Schumacher? Or was there a genuine sign that when Ferrari wasn't as dominant, Michael could be more fragile when he was in amongst it? Well, I think it's a bit like what you said earlier. You know, they could have come, come into the third race of the season having won the first two. Uh, it didn't quite happen. So, you know, within themselves, they would have looked fairly deeply to, as to why that didn't happen. So pressure is always relative. It's it's just every weekend is a new weekend in, in motor racing or in any sport, to be honest. You know, every time you run 100 metres, it's a new event. You have to try and win it. Uh, it's the same with Grand Prix racing. You just have to make sure on the day you do the best job you can. And if you don't do it well enough, then understand why and and try and rectify it. And I think Ferrari were always very, very good at that. Obviously, as you're, uh, if you if the competition is close, the pressure changes. The pressure is a little bit different. It's not just about going out and doing your best job, because other people are close to you, and it becomes nip and tuck. So, you know, you you're you're trying to find that extra tenth of a second just because the other guys are so close to you, as opposed to you having that little bit of a cushion. So, um, it does change the pressure. But I think Ferrari were big enough and bold enough to to be able to understand why they were losing it. And it really wasn't changing the pressure on, on either of the drivers. You, you're in a different position whenever you're racing, if you're in the middle of the pack fighting for it, than if you're out front leading by a mile. So um, it changes the pressure, but I think the pressure is still just the same. Coulthard also felt that one of the rule changes for 2003 that was supposed to stop Schumacher disappearing into the distance was actually helping him now he was struggling. And that was the new point system for this season. The previous system of points being paid out to the top six was extended to the top eight for 2003, and the gap between first and second was reduced from four points to two, with the aim being to keep the championship battle closer after Schumacher wrapped up the 2002 championship in July, which we covered earlier in this series. Coulthard said the system should be able to stop him getting a big gap, but as it has played out, it will actually help him. By the time he starts getting the results that we know he's capable of, the championship leaders won't be as far away as they were in the past. In fairness, Schumacher was only two points closer to the lead at this point than he would have been under the old system, so it wasn't making a huge difference this early on. But Mark, what did you make of, of the points change for 2003? I guess the big two things were two more points places on offer and reducing that gap uh, between first and second. Yes, absolutely. I think it was a good thing on both counts. And it did keep the championship open um, for longer and on this occasion because how many uh, Kimi didn't win all that many races, but he was still in contention for the championship going into the into the last round. So it worked in that way. And I think also the the, the probably the, the bigger um, positive aspect of it was the, the, the effect it had with the little team because at the time that it was the Sport was being dominated by just three teams, so you got points down at the top six. That's your that's your three teams. So the the other teams were not only not getting rewarded, but there was no real distinguishing of merit between them. Um, so yeah, this this corrected that, and at least you know if you were nipping at their heels, you you would you would be rewarded with points, and then that sort of pays out at the end of the seasons. And 
Yes, it made the historical points record meaningless, but then it already was anyway because there were vastly more races in the calendar by this time than when the original top six point system was first brought in in the 60s. And Gary, I assume at Jordan's end of the grid, as Mark hinted at there, this must have been a welcome change. Yeah, it was a very good change, to be honest, because, you know, you could finish seventh every weekend and have a really good weekend and actually score nothing. And whenever you go to a sponsor or whatever, you know, it's the points that you want to sell to them um, because that means you're competing. So the difference in finishing seventh and finishing 14th is nothing other than the fact you can get a couple of points for it. So I think at the at the lower end of the points scale, it was a good thing. At the upper end of the points scale, the, the 10 for a win and eight for, for a second, was, um, yeah, it was right. It kept the competition a bit closer. You know, when we look at what we've got now with 25 and then 18, it's a massive difference. And that's changed quite a bit through through time because Bernie Eccleston always felt it was uh, important to have that big points gap because you you the driver would try to win the race because the points were rewarding for it as opposed to just being happy to finish second. So it's one of those sort of situations where everything gets changed for a reason at the time and sometimes people forget what the reason is, um, and it sort of just goes round and round in circles. But for a, a small team, definitely the points going further back is a much better solution. Now, there were early season changes at Williams after that slightly disappointing start to the season that Mark mentioned. Jason Somerville and Nick Alcock were let go from the design team, and there was a feeling that as the only top team running its 2003 car already, Williams should have made a stronger start while Ferrari and McLaren were running versions of their 2002 cars. Frank Williams described the changes going on behind the scenes as substantial, and he said that Patrick Head missed the Malaysian Grand Prix so he could spend another week in the factory making the car quicker. Juan Pablo Montoya, who could have won in Australia if he hadn't spun out of the lead, said, We expected our new car to be mega quick when it came out, and it's quicker than last year's, but it's not that much quicker. The design, everything is much better but the performance hasn't come yet. Ralph Schumacher was a bit more optimistic, as for Brazil, the Williams would have a new front wing and would be running its definitive rear suspension rather than an interim system. Ralph had enjoyed a particularly good test with the updated car, which had also prompted his brother Michael to declare it a big step forward for Williams. Ralph said ahead of Brazil, we made real progress last week. When you are hopeful about something and it doesn't quite work out, you do see motivation go down a bit, but I've never seen as big a push to get the car right as at the Williams factory. Last week, the car was much easier to drive. So Mark, you made the point earlier that really we thought Williams would be the team to make hay, perhaps while Ferrari was still running its old car. We know that the 2003 Williams and its Michelin tyres would come good eventually, but was this an underwhelming start, given that the cards had seemed to fall in Williams's favour? It was, yes, definitely an underwhelming start. Um, there was, uh, you know, there were up upper end of the grid, but not um, not really where we'd have expected them to be against um, last year's Ferrari and last year's McLaren. Um, yes, Montoya had been in place to win in Australia, but he dropped it, which gave the race to Coulthard. Ralph was gone through some sort of crisis in form which he did every now and again um a very particular driver needed the car exactly as he needed it to be so he wasn't he wasn't having such a great start to the season but would come good later on um Montoya had been involved in a first lap accident in Malaysia so the car's potential wasn't obvious especially as the the fueled up qualifying which we'll talk about 
later, made the car's real performance hard to assess if it didn't pit as scheduled, you know, if there was weather that, that changed things or there'd been an incident. So you, you didn't really get to find out for sure how much fuel had been on board when, when he did that particular qualifying lap. So it was a bit difficult to assess after a couple of races. They hadn't qualified particularly well here. And yeah, it, it took a few more races before Williams really got that car working. But when eventually did, it flew. And there was a, a while mid-season, it was F1's fastest car, without a doubt. Um, and Williams did seem to be, at that time, a very volatile organisation. You know, just take the slightest little bit of uh, underperformance and suddenly there were whole-scale changes being made and people being criticised publicly. And it did seem as though the long years of Ferrari domination, it, it, it put a, a pressure on it that it wasn't really responding to all that that well. And um, and I know maybe Gary's got a, a better insight on this than me, but it, it did seem that it was sort of caught in between being a, a big team and, and a, a little team, and it didn't have the cushion, cushioning effect of a a big team where, where when, when something uh, goes wrong, there are systems to go through, and then it's it's analysed properly, and then everybody looks at, you know, it reflects on why. It, it seemed to be a much more instinctual place than that. Um, and I think when when it's a, a small team, it's 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 really down to the, you know, the team principal or the boss to 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 have that sort of um, calming effect on things. But that Williams wasn't very calm place at the, at this time in history. It was a, a very volatile place. And it was it was still capable of uh, making the quick car, really quick cars, but it, it did it did seem to be, you know, not not a very relaxed place. Yeah, I think um you know one of the things I'd say about it was that Williams seemed to always um they never sort of changed their ways. They 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 stuck with what they were good at when they were very successful. And you know that's not the wrong thing to do, but Formula One was changing dramatically, and they didn't really quite join the club, or even the people they had there at the time. You know, they didn't sort of buy into them, knowing what the that the club had changed. They were going in a different direction. They were, as I say, they were very good at doing what they did. That if you're sort of classifying it as a as one thing against another, I would say they were very very good at building a a very sound mechanical car, but never quite joined the aerodynamic club. Um, you know, Adrian Newey, when he was there, he was the one that took them into sort of new areas as such, as far as that was concerned. But when Adrian left, that seemed to be the light switch that went off. Um, and they never really sort of came back to, back again. Um, I think, to be honest, you know, they suffered that for a long, long time. You know, they had they had good engines. The BMW engine, that was, was mega. Uh, they should have done the job correctly. The drivers were very good. As you said, Mark, there, you know, Ralph needed a car that he could drive his way. And his way was was the way Michael would drive a car, to be honest. But Ralph didn't quite know why Michael drove it that way. It's just the way they talk about it. And, you know, he would try and use those characteristics to get the car to work. But he, he wasn't quite sure why he was doing it. But um, I think you're right in the fact that it got a bit political within the team as well. You know, they, they got a bit of an infighting going on because new people would come with new ideas. And the old people weren't weren't interested in buying into that, to be honest. So it was a slightly different, difficult position to be in and motivation definitely dropped away. That fits quite well with a quote from Ralph that we referenced in our Monaco 2004 episode, actually, where he said he felt there was a, a bit of a feeling within Williams of always looking for what made them great 20 years, 20 years ago uh, and not moving with the times. Ahead of Brazil, 
the FIA firmed up its stance on the use of the hands device, which became mandatory for all drivers in 2003. Justin Wilson had suffered temporary paralysis when his seatbelt slipped off his hands device in the Malaysian Grand Prix, and he had to spend a night in hospital. And Rubens Barrichello had been given dispensation to race without wearing it in Malaysia after he said the discomfort from it contributed to his crash in Australia. But the FIA said before Brazil there would be no more dispensations, not only because of the overwhelming evidence that it was a safety improvement, but also because there was a slight centre of gravity benefit for anyone not using it. The FIA told the teams, if any driver is unable to wear the device for medical or other reasons, the teams concerned will have to replace him, just as they would if he could not wear a crash helmet or seatbelts. The proven safety gains are so great that it would be irresponsible to abandon the system. Barrichello called that decision a joke in Italian newspaper Gazzetta dello Sport, adding, uh, I don't understand how you can force someone to use a collar that causes pain, but it's a futile discussion. Rubens then tried a new, better-fitting version of the device in testing and said he felt comfortable with it, but he reiterated that he felt it was something a driver should only wear if he wants to. Now, Gary, it seems crazy almost 20 years on to think there was this much fuss over something that we're just so used to seeing all the drivers have now. But what did you think of hands at the time when it first came in? And could you understand why some of the drivers didn't like it? Well, I think through the years, it's always been the same when something came in, like, like seatbelts. When they came in, you know, drivers didn't like them. Um, and obviously, we know now that it's, it's a major, major part of the safety the headrest was, was exactly the same. All, anything that encroached upon the driver's normal way of doing his job at that point in time, they fought it. Um, I think the initial hands devices that we had and trying to fit them into the car, you know, the, 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 the prototypes as such, um, it wasn't that easy because, you know, they hadn't really been used in a, in a formula car. So they weren't really completely suited to the formula car. Um, they were fairly cumbersome. Um, and to get to have the headrest detail that you needed and the and the hands device in there and comfortable and the seat belts and all that, uh, you know, I've I looked at it many many times thinking, you know, that isn't that isn't that nice. It's not that free. You know, you're not you're not in there just with the freedom of being a driver. You really are trapped in the car now with this. So it was a it was a difficult thing to sort of get everybody comfortable with it. But you know, as the FIA put the foot down, and that's what you had to do because. We didn't know the outcome of it was pretty good. Um, if somebody had a, a, an impact, so we knew that it was a it was a definitely a safety feature that should be installed in the car. Perhaps it might have been better to have had a little bit more time to to have done it and made it made it work better, because the you know two thousand three season I suppose was um, was the season that everybody got used to. It, I suppose you might call it, but it, it wouldn't have been right for one driver to have had to, to have used it and another driver not to. Um, if nobody had had to use it, then it would be a different story altogether. But I think the right decisions were made. It had to be. It had to be forced in. People had to get used to it some way or another. And when the teams were able to actually produce their own and make it, you know, suit their car uh, geometry that little bit better, and the driver's shoulder geometry better, then I think all those problems disappeared. But that that does take time. You know, it's never it's never it's never just a light switch job. You have to really work on it for a while um, but it all it all evolves okay in the end of the day and we've seen it many many occasions now it's it has saved some lives for sure 
At the back of the grid, Minardi boss Paul Stoddart was pushing for clarity on a proposed fighting fund to help his team and Jordan stay afloat. The fund had been put forward in January of 2003 in reaction to Prost and Arrows falling off the grid in relatively quick succession over the previous 12 months. And the initial money would come from the funds those teams would have been entitled to from the F1 organisation if they had stayed afloat. Stoddart said the fund was originally designed to ease the pressure on Jordan and Minardi's engine bills, and I still believe that is the primary aim. Hopefully we find a way forward so we can keep 10 healthy teams in Formula 1. If things stay as they are now, we will go through the rest of the year struggling from race to race. It's one budget to compete, another budget to progress and develop. Gary, do you remember much about this fighting fund and how precarious was Jordan's situation by 2003? Um, well, Jordan's situation was precarious all the way through 2002 and 2003, to be honest. It was uh, definitely living from day to day. We um, we built cars, but you know, I, when the car was on the ground, that was it. We never had any money for development. I actually had done a bit of a deal with our accountant or our financial um, director to everything we could save out of our budget um i was i was planning to get 25 percent of it for development so it was in my interest to save as much money as possible out of the car build um but whenever it came to it and we had a little bit of a fund there um i was told no so yeah my money was really really tight all the time um and i, I do remember a bit about the fund and you know if if there's any chance whatsoever of somebody giving eddie jordan uh, some money then he'll definitely be lined up for it. So I'm sure that him and, and Stoddy were, were fighting pretty hard to get this this fund that should have gone to Prost and to Aras. But it wasn't one of those things that, you know, you ever felt would actually happen. Um, it's exactly the same as, you know, since then, well, even before that, but even right up to now, they're still shouting about equality of, you know, payments and all that sort of stuff. So it never changes because no matter, in Formula 1, no matter how much money you've got, you've never actually got enough. Because that's the whole objective of the thing is to spend as wisely as possible to to get the best results possible. Um, but you can always spend a bit more. So a fund that was there to help Jordan and, and uh, study to to sort of pay their engine bills would would definitely not be seen by the other teams as as a level playing field, even though we were the smallest teams in the pit lane. So I, I never thought it would ever come to anything. I did hear about it. We did chat about it. But at the end of the day, it's, it was never, ever going to come to anything, to be honest, of, of any value. F1 had a new qualifying format in 2003, as this was the first year of one-shot qualifying. There was a session on the Friday that would then set the order for the grid-setting Saturday session, where the fastest Friday runner would run last. F1 also introduced a rule that would last a lot longer than one-shot qualifying, and we did mention it briefly earlier. And that was for drivers to qualify with the amount of fuel on board that they wanted to start the race with. Bernie Eccleston wasn't a fan of the changes. He said the drivers are not driving on the limit and they only do one fast lap and return to the pits and do nothing. They can only watch. They don't have the chance to try and beat a rival who has bettered their time. There's no fighting. The new system is not working. The excitement of qualifying is gone. David Coulthard and Juan Pablo Montoya said pole position didn't mean as much anymore because someone could just run light to get the quickest lap. And Michael Schumacher said he preferred the previous system of everyone having a full hour to fight it out for pole. Ron Dennis didn't like the idea of F1 becoming more of a show than a technical challenge. 
but he also wasn't impressed with Bernie being so critical of the format after just two races. Ron said, whatever the show is, the ringmaster should be wholeheartedly behind it, irrespective of whether it is good, bad or indifferent. Bernie is the ringmaster and he should behave like one. Mark, so what did you make of the combination of one-shot qualifying and the race start fuel loads? And did Ron have a point that Bernie shouldn't have been talking it down so quickly? It had pros and cons, and it wasn't as good a resolution as um, we eventually settled on a few years later with the Q1 and Q2 knockout sessions. Um, the single lap format was well planned and long known about, but the uh, race start fuel load element, that was a very late addition, and it was one suggested by Williams's Patrick Head, and it brought a bit of variation, which was desperately being craved in 2002 as Ferrari had so dominated. But I don't know if Patrick at the time realized what a masterstroke he'd pulled for Williams because that aspect of the rules, the, the park firma required after qualifying with your race starting fuel load on board, totally scuppered Ferrari. When he made that suggestion, I don't think Patrick could have known that Ferrari's 2003 car was much longer and therefore would have unsuitable weight distribution for qualifying. They couldn't get enough weight onto the front axle with race fuel loads, but it did. And that's largely why Ferrari was only pretty good in 2003 rather than totally dominant like they'd been in 02 and would be again in 04. As for whether Bernie should have got behind a new system more rather than criticise it, I can understand Ron's point on that from a team perspective, but no, I, I always liked Bernie's frankness. He was dissatisfied with what we had and this helped push us to something better. Yeah, Bernie would always uh, jump in for sure. And, uh, you know, I think he always recognised things quite quickly. Other people got upset a bit about it because uh, he would say things and he would you know, publicly say them. So he didn't sort of hide his punches. Um, so I, I think at the end of the day, you know, there, there's two different things here. There's a competition and there's a TV show. Um, and obviously, the TV show will benefit from the competition being, being strong. Um, the competition doesn't actually benefit from the TV show being strong. So you have to make sure that what you're producing and what you're making happen makes a good TV show. And sometimes that needs to be slightly artificial. But I do agree with Bernie that, you know, whenever you had that one lap with your race fuel load on the car, you know, th there was no retaliation. There was no driver sitting there just going to come out, you know, like the Senna Prost days where, where you knew that Senna was going to come out and wring that car's neck on that last lap. Um, there was none of that, that had all sort of gone really, to be honest. And, uh, you end up with this, as, as I said, driving the cars reasonably under control, I suppose, um, because you're going to depart Fermi and the fuel load you had. It did give you an opportunity sometimes to surprise a few people with the, with the fuel load that you'd run, but you usually paid the price as, the, as the, the weekend went past, as the race came to you. If you started too low in fuel, one thing or another, you, know, you, you would qualify well, but you're in the pits you know, too early and vice versa, run too heavy a fuel load and and you're stuck at the back. So it never really served the purpose. I think what we have currently, you know, the, the knockout uh, competition is, is a pretty decent comp uh, competition for qualifying. Yeah, I was I was a fan of the one-shot thing when it came in. I thought this would be a really good idea. It will mix things up. It will punish mistakes. But looking at it actually as a spectacle, it was 20 of the same thing, which was a car driving around on its own. And I, I think that, that got old pretty quickly. And yeah, I mean, the the fuel thing stuck around until 2009, the qualifying fuel. And did did that actually sometimes give us some artificial grids and some jumbled up first stints? Probably. Um, but yeah, that wasn't argued about maybe as much 
as it would be today. But let's look at some other arguments about the rules. The ban on driver aids uh, was pushed back until the start of 2004, having previously been slated to come in mid-season in 03. That date had been chosen after the teams felt banning them for the start of 2003 was too soon. The delay until 2004 was a result of uncertainty at the FIA, created by legal action taken by McLaren and Williams over the abrupt nature of some of the sweeping rule changes for 2003, such as the qualifying format, which those teams believed put the FIA in breach of its contract for governing the championship. One of the most interesting quotes, though, that came up around this time was from Michael Schumacher. Schumacher was one of the many drivers to welcome the decision to delay the driver aids ban so teams could prepare for it over the winter. But he also said, I have never made any secret of my opinion of the electronic driver aids. I think they are good because they give the drivers the possibility to get the maximum potential out of the car with no compromises. Now, Mark, I, I was fascinated by that quote because I think when we think of driver aids, we think back to Ayrton Senna, who always felt that driver aids for everybody lessened the advantage of, of his natural gift compared to his, his rivals. Against that, was it surprising to hear that Schumacher, arguably the most gifted driver of the era, was, was such a fan of driver aids? No, not really. Um, Schumacher had found his own advantage with them. And, and there was a way to be quick with driver aids and, and there was a way to make driving the car very easy, but it wasn't the same thing. There were set, settings controlling how much traction control you had, and, and the optimum wasn't just full traction control. That would make it the easiest, but that wasn't the quickest. And it was a movable optimum point, you know, according to the track and the conditions and whatever. And, and Schumacher was masterful in how he was able to use it and adapt his driving around it. It was just a different skill, but it, its core came from the same place. The fast drivers were still the fast drivers. And Ayrton hadn't got to play very long with traction control. It was a bit of the 93 season, I think, is about all he had. But I think if he had done and he'd gone with the development of it, he'd have found there was still a real advantage to be had there from a, you know somebody of his skill level. Yeah, I think it was one of those sort of situations where you had to be very careful. You could, you could If you had a, a new driver, I suppose, 2002 was an example from, from us. We had Takuma Sata and, and Fisichella in the, in the Jordan. And... Um, Takuma would just use the traction control 100%. I mean, he'd just come out of a corner, nail the throttle flat out, and that was it. Leave it up to the traction control. Giancarlo would come out of the corner and still be an old school. He would play with the throttle. So not only would he try to uh, overcome the traction control a little bit, which he couldn't do, he would confuse it. He would confuse the traction control. So, you know, he'd be lifting whenever he felt the wheel spin setting in and the traction control really hadn't reacted to it. So it was uh, it was a bit of the old school against the new school. I think for the new drivers, it was perfect because if you drove like Takuma, you could, you know, as an engineer, you could sort of tidy up and, and modify the traction control to, to get the best out of it. But whenever you drove like Fizzy, you end up with... In Mr. No Man's Land, because he was always going to work the throttle because he knew what was coming up. But um, it was interesting because he used to watch quite a lot through Turn 3 in Barcelona when you're talking about Michael Schumacher and uh, traction control. And I remember watching many, many times there and he would do you know a couple of laps of traction control on because you could, you could hear the difference, obviously, with the engine cutting. And then he'd do a couple of laps with him in control um, when you, you didn't hear the engine cutting. So... He, I think he was trying to teach the engineers at that point in time 
this is the way I would like it to be because this is how I drive the car. So if you can make the traction control be be 95% of, of me, then it'll suit me. And, and as Mark says, you know, you can have the car very comfortable to drive with a lot of traction control, so there's no, no big drama. Um, or you can have it still on the edge and allow the driver still to have his input, but the traction control is there to, uh, to save you when it all goes a bit wrong. I think that explanation will make a lot of sense to anyone who plays the modern Formula One games, where uh, if you go full traction control, you won't spin off, but you won't be as quick. Before we get on to the action of the race weekend, let's have some more Jordan chat, though, because this weekend was the team's 200th race. Eddie Jordan was asked about the milestone and he said, I must be out of my mind to keep doing this. The first couple of years were horrific, but that's part of Jordan's style. They were able to move with different changing circumstances. There have been some highs and lows in the 12 years that we've been in Formula One, and I'm proud of what we have achieved against the odds. I've always said that the best times for me were firstly surviving our first season, and after that, of course, the race wins, particularly our 1-2 at Spa in 1998. Gary, you'd been there for that, that difficult beginning that Eddie described at Jordan, then you'd been away for a bit with Stuart and Jaguar, but you'd come back in 2002. How special was it for you, having been there at the beginning, to be back with the team when it reached 200? Yeah, it was very special. Obviously, you know, I went away for a few years because we got into a situation in, within the team where it, it was growing. Um, there was a lot of politics coming into it. I didn't appreciate that much. Um, 98, we were not as successful as we had planned to be, but, you know, it wasn't all just down to us uh, and me in particular. But um, at the end of the day, we both needed to breathe a little bit away from each other. And the the big thing during that period, obviously with the 1-2 in, in Spa in 98, then they did start to bring in some substantial sponsorship. So the sort of 99, 2000, 2001 years were probably the, the years where, uh, Eddie could relax a little bit and, and the, you know, the sponsor would ring him as opposed to him having to ring the sponsor. So things became a little bit easier. But um, he spoke to me in 2001, you know, a couple of times about coming back because I was doing IndyCars during that period with Reynard. And, um, you know, it was one of those sort of things. I didn't want to come back as technical director. I came back as what at that point in time I called as, um, you know, race director, whatever you like to call it, where I'd run the, the cars at the racetrack. Because I, th I sort of felt at that time there was a, a big grey area between the design of the car and getting the best out of it and the running of it at the racetrack and getting the best out of it. And that grey area needed to be sort of separated, I suppose you might call it. So I, I enjoyed the racing side of it. I enjoyed the strategy side of it. So I decided that was you know, a better solution for me. Um, but unfortunately, you know, whenever I come back in the beginning of, of 2000 or end of 2001, it was November, the first thing I was confronted with was reducing the staff level because the sponsorship wasn't coming anymore. You know, everybody tightened up the, the, the belts a little bit and the money wasn't coming in. So it was a bit of a change. Um, it was nice to get back there and it was nice to sort of see the team regroup as a group of people that was still there from the past. Um, but it, it definitely had lost its way a little bit, to be honest. It definitely had lost its focus of being this small team that that uh, did better than than they, they should do um, and it needed to sort of re recalibrate itself a little bit as to what its expectations were and that's what we were going through in 2002 and 2003 to be able to try to sort of get the team stabilized again but unfortunately once you have a reasonably large team 
and the money doesn't start doesn't keep coming in it's not long before you find the the bank balance on on the going down the wrong way so um it really did hurt us quite a lot to be honest i mean we did two seasons uh, 2002 and 2003 we did two 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 different cars um but we never we never we weren't able to change the drive shaft configuration because we had so many drive shafts left over from 2000 2001 in a, in a store, we just had to use them. You know, they, you wouldn't believe how how many different drive shafts. And the reason for all the different drive shafts in there was all the, the different stiffness in the in the drive shaft. I mean, different wall thickness tube, basically. Um, they're very very complicated pieces of kit with all the, the tripod on the end and all machined in one piece. And the different stiffnesses of drive shaft. You know, uh, in two thousand two thousand one, Jordan would had had a different stiffness drive shaft for qualifying relative to the race. Yeah, it just went on forever. We never bought a brake disc. We used the ones that were in the store because put them on once, take them off and put them in the store. So it spent a lot of money in those two years that we tried to recover from in 2002 and 2003. And, you know, we never really sort of, we never really got there, I think, is the best way of putting it. When the action got going, another rule change for 2003 was in the spotlight. And that was the rule that only permitted one type of wet weather tyre to be used on a race weekend rather than the previous situation where teams could bring an intermediate and a full wet. This led to talk of drivers signing a petition to cancel Friday qualifying because it was too wet for the intermediates that were being used, although in the end that session went ahead. And on Sunday the start of the race was delayed because conditions were too bad for the tyres. Ferrari and Bridgestone were leading the complaints against this new rule and they had plenty of support, while Michelin, which was accused of pushing for the rule change in the first place, thought it was fine and it was very happy with how its own tyres were performing. Jacques Villeneuve, who was outspoken on plenty of occasions during this weekend and wasn't uh, impressed at all by all the talk of a petition over Friday qualifying, said that only having one wet tyre was extremely dangerous because it's impossible to have one type of tyre that can cover the full range from full wet to when it's time to put slicks on. Ron Dennis suggested that the rules could specify the tread depth and what he called the LAD-C ratio of the tyres, which would make them more conservative, but hopefully safer. The FAA released a short comment on the debate uh, at this time, which simply said, given the wet weather commonly experienced in Brazil, it is surprising the teams decided to bring intermediate tyres. So Mark, what did you think of that rule? And you've discussed already how bad the weather was in the build-up to the start. Was it the right call to delay it? It was a cost-saving attempt, possibly championed by Michelin, as you say, which hadn't been properly thought through. The competitive nature of the teams, it always pushed them to opt for inters because that covers a wider range of conditions. But if it comes too wet for them, then, yeah, you have to delay the start because you, you get to a situation where the car's just going to float on its plank or, or on top or its tyres not being touched with the the, the ground and it's you, the driver's got zero control over it from that moment so the problem was the tire rule not the delay the delay was absolutely necessary to pre prevent carnage the race eventually started behind the safety car with rubens barrichello leading the field away in his home race followed by coulthard mark webber's lightly fueled jaguar kimi raikkonen jano trilli ralph schumacher michael schumacher Giancarlo Fisichella's Jordan in eighth, ahead of Montoya and Alonso, who completed the top ten. After seven laps, with the race still behind the safety car, Fisichella gave up that eighth place to make a pit stop, with teammate Ralph Furman coming in a lap later 
just before the field was released to get racing. So Gary, talk us through the Jordan strategy here of dropping both cars to the back of the field before racing had even got underway. Yes, well, <clears throat> there's obviously different opinions here and there of all the strategy, but from my point of view, um, my, fa- my father passed away two weeks before uh, the Brazilian Grand Prix. And obviously, I was, you know, I was a bit caught up, caught up about that, and because of motorsport, you know, you can't afford the time to be back there with your family and stuff. So I was, on the Saturday night, I was sort of um, thinking really about stuff, about life. And I had this sort of premonition, a bit of a dream you might call it, that um, we could carry enough fuel in the car to get to lap 54, which was the three-quarter race distance. Um, and that, you know, if we pitted, if it was wet and if we pitted, filled the car to the brim before it uh, restarted, we would have an opportunity to, to get to that point. And the way the weather had been in Brazil, I sort of fairly confident that if it, if it rained, it was going to rain heavy. The weather forecast was for heavy rain on the Sunday. So it was something that was in the back of my mind that this is something we could do. Um, and if, if the race starts under the um, safety car, then there's a very good chance that they'll do it because the, the it, you know, it was late in the day as well. So you've got to be careful there because of it getting dark. Dark and wet is not a good thing to, to be uh, racing in. So I came in uh, on the on the Sunday morning and I got Rob Smedley, who was Fizzy's engineer, and um, and Eddie. And I said, I had a bit of a thought about this. You know, If we fuel the car up at the beginning, we can get to lap 54 and um, that's three-quarter race distance. And if for any reason the race gets, gets stopped, red flagged or whatever, that's the time they'll do it because it's the time they can officially give full points and, you know, whoever's doing well will, will succeed out of it. And uh, Eddie said, do you think that would happen? I said, well, yeah, it's worth a shot, isn't it? You know, if, if the occasion arises at the start of the race, then it's worth a shot. So, you know, as it happened, the rain started, as Mark said, very heavily before the race. I went to see the FIA, got them to agree to allow us to raise the right heights. Um went to the grid, I mean, abs, everybody in that grid was just saturated. I mean, the rain was coming down like you couldn't believe. Um, and then it was delayed that that 15 minutes, whatever it was. Um, and then it started, you know, as I said, it started behind the, the safety car. So everything was heading in that direction. And we had a, a basic plan that we thought we'd uh, carry out. Um, so that was, you know, that was where the strategy really, really came uh to the fore was to try to do something that would be different if possible because we'd qualified eighth and you know that was well above where we should have qualified so we, by no means were we going to go a long way in the race if it had been dry or at any point in time i think in the wet we could get to lap 10 probably in a racing racing conditions um and then we'd obviously pit and then we'd just have to see what would happen during the weekend so we um we had that in the back of our mind and the start of the race the conditions at the start of the race, everything was falling into place with, with, uh, with what we wanted to, 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 to happen. We just had to react to it correctly. Now, Mark, you were covering this race. You'd, you'd salvaged your keyboard by this point. When the Jordans came in, had you, had you twigged what they were probably up to? I don't actually recall. It was a long time ago, but you, you, monitor, you monitor a lot of things <laughs> simultaneously through the field when you're trying to make sense of a race. And, um, Probably, probably at some point later, uh, as Fissy stayed out. Obviously, if you if you're pitting, if you're surrendering position and pitting behind a safety car, it's 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 an order to extend your range. But I doubt whether it had 
occurred it's to trying to get to 75 percent distance or whatever you just you're too busy to to be trying to work everything out that's that's happening at some point it would have been clear as fissy stayed out there and then you'd be thinking back to when he last stopped you know as he came further and further up the field you'd think when did he stop oh yeah he took that extra stop from the back early in the in, in at the back early in the race and that in combination with whether the race would go full distance as that sort of that idea comes on the radar yes the penny would have dropped at some point but i don't recall exactly when it probably it probably wasn't when they actually made the pit stop well we you know we actually sort of talked to fizzy about it before the race as as you would normally do and we said look this is an option just have to see how things unfold and during those whatever it was six seven laps eight laps behind the safety car we started to talk to him to say, look, you know, we're going to do this because there is an opportunity here. And uh, he he didn't want to then. He wanted to go racing because he was eighth on the grid as such. He felt that he could, in those conditions, he could go racing with, with most people. And he felt he would rather have a short-term glory for, um, you know, a long-term risk. Uh, but we got to whatever the safety car was, was coming in. And basically, you know, I, we said to him then, look, come in now you know you not listening anymore to you but not wanting to we want to do this so we had to force him to come into the pits to do it which he did obviously but um that was the time whenever somebody might have realized what we were doing you know we weren't the only ones that did it um at the end of the day there's other people you know tried to do the same sort of thing but they um you know at the end of the day we were the one that saw it through the lesson there is never listen to a racing driver on strategy once the racing got underway Barrichello was swallowed up by the pack. The McLarens of Coulthard and Raikkonen were quickly up to first and second, and then Montoya passed in for third, having come up from ninth on the grid. Rubens fell all the way back to sixth in just three racing laps, including dropping behind teammate Schumacher. Up front, Raikkonen and Montoya passed Coulthard, although as the track started to dry, Coulthard got back ahead of Montoya, who was then passed by Schumacher for third on lap 16. So, Mark, all this early shuffling of the pack, was that largely being dictated by tyre performance? Yes. In, in in full wet, the Michelin Inter was better. But in the semi-wet, the Bridgeton Inter was. Um, the Michelin Inter was pitched more towards a wetter track and the Bridgeton Inter more towards a drying one. And at each pitched the changeover point between their Inter and their full wet at different points. So the Bridgeton Inter didn't work very well in full wet conditions, but the Michelin Inter hung on much longer in the wetter conditions. But the Bridgestone full wet tyre, which nobody brought here, that that was better than the Michelin full wet. So you can detect Michelin's agenda in suggesting this rule. Um, as the track began to not be so wet, so the Bridgestone Inter began coming back on song. It was hopeless in the initial really wet laps, which is why Rubens disappeared. Um, but it, it began to come on song as the track began to dry and it got it to its working range and you could see that here as Schumacher started to make his progress. There were plenty of bizarre accidents in this race and we'll get through most of them but the first major one involved Jordan's Ralph Furman who suffered a spectacular front suspension failure approaching the first corner and his three-wheeled car narrowly missed wiping out teammate Fissy Keller then clouted the back of Panis's Toyota instead. So Gary what happened here? Uh, and in reports at the time, you said the team had to consider if it was a risk to keep Fissy Keller out there. So how confident could you be that Fissy's car was was going to be okay and not suffer whatever the problem was that put Ralph out of the race? 
Well, the first thing I'd like to say is that to, to get to the checkered flag or get to the red flag or whatever you like to call it, lap 54, we needed all the safety cars we could get. But I promise you, we didn't expect one of them to be coming from Ralph's car. And that was <laughs> completely um, out of the blue. Um, what happened was the outboard end of, of the right front wishbone failed. Um, it was a titanium machining that fits into the outboard end of the wishbone. It's uh, bonded and, and fastened and fixed in there with a the mechanical fixing. Um, and it failed under braking, um, which was a you know a bit of a surprise to us to be honest. Um, and we're on the pit wall and thinking, oof, this is not this is not good, um, because you have another driver out there in the same sort of conditions. So um, at that point in time, Andy Stevenson, who's now um, racing director at at Aston Martin, was our chief mechanic. He's still there after many years. Um, and I got him on the radio and I said, Andy, can you find out the mileages of the wishbones on on um, Fizzy's car against the wishbones on, on uh, Furman's car so we can uh, evaluate it and see where we were? And it came to pass that the ones on, on Ralph Furman's car were actually a new set of wishbones, bottom wishbones, for that race, uh, whereas the ones on Fizzy's car had done like 2,000 kilometers or something. Um, so... End of the day, you've got to make some decisions. And I felt if they'd done 2,000 kilometers, there was a good chance that it was okay. These ones being new, there was a good chance that there was some sort of construction problem with it as opposed to a design failure. Um, and we, we, we rode that storm and went with it and said, okay, let's, you know, let's take it because that's, that's probably the reasons. Uh, and in the end of the day, it was the reason that one of the mechanical fixings that was in the outboard end of the wishbone hadn't been put in correctly. So, um, it it was it was an assembly problem basically, but uh, yeah, we we then rode the storm and went with Fizzy and decided to continue. We'll stick with the theme of incidents for now. As one of the things this race is famous for is the number of cars that crashed at turn three, where a river had formed across the track. Justin Wilson was the first car to go off there on lap fifteen, but over the rest of the race, Montoya, Pizzonia, Michael Schumacher, Jos Verstappen, and Jensen Button all crashed crashed there. And Mark Webber spun but was able to continue. Although, as we'll find out later, Mark probably wishes he just nudged the barriers at turn three. Schumacher said that in general the conditions were difficult but acceptable. But he said that once he aquaplaned at turn three, he was just a passenger, so there was nothing he could do. Wilson said the problem at turn three was that there was more than one river running across the track and they were never in the same place on two consecutive laps. And if you watch these accidents back, there's also the uncomfortable sight a few times of recovery vehicles sitting in the runoff area as the race is going on and more cars are spinning off. Mark, have you ever seen anything like what we saw at turn three in that race with, with so many cars spinning in the same way across those rivers? And because of the way the track was effectively flooded there, were the drivers blameless in a situation like that? I saw something similar in the early laps, Nürburgring 2007. Um, but yeah, I mean, the drivers were just passengers, as, as Michael said, and there, there's always rivers running across the track there when it gets really wet because it, uh, it, it it's draining from the hill to the right of that track. So the, the earth can't, you know, soak up anymore and it just just all goes down the hill and which is makes its way across the track and if your tire treads can't clear the water and they just float on top of the river instead at a point where you're trying to turn the car then you're going to go off and it's it you know if the, if the rivers are in a different place it, 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 each lap it's just sort of in the lap of the gods 
how much you're trying to turn the car when you when it started aquaplane and how deep the water is there as you cross it and how much treads left on your tires etc so yeah of course you could go through there really slowly um but no one else will so you can't do that either so yeah it's just you're in the lap of the gods and uh as everyone went off i was rubbing my hands in the pit (laughs) (laughs) yep uh we'll come back to that shortly gary As always in a race as crazy as this, seemingly everyone comes away from it declaring they could have won it. And in this case, even Paul Stoddart reckoned Minardi could have won. We won't interrogate that claim too much. There were other tales of woe out there, such as uh, Button's BAR being fueled to the end when he crashed out of fifth. So who knows who else could have won it. But as Gary said there, you've got to survive. You've got to make it to the end. But one obvious retirement that's worth a quick mention is Barrichello who suffered the heartbreak of breaking down while in the lead of his home Grand Prix when his car ran out of fuel because of an electronics fault. A dejected Barrichello said he felt enormous disappointment and that destiny is against me. He said he was sad not only for himself but for all of Brazil and he vowed that he would not stop racing until he had won his home Grand Prix, which by my count he still hasn't. Mark, by the time Barrichello retired after 46 of what should have been 71 laps. Did this look like a race that was his to lose, or was it too early to tell at that stage? He was in a very strong position. Uh, we, we didn't know how much fuel everybody else had relative to what he had, but he ran out of fuel, which which always made me wonder, because how could such a miscalculation have been made? They, they later said it was a software error and in, in how, how they were measuring how much fuel was left, but... Coming into this race, someone had asked if Michael would be given title priority at Ferrari, and Michael had answered that it it didn't get assigned automatically, that whoever was established as a head in the points would get priority. And if Rubens had won this race, he'd have been comfortably ahead in the points. And so Ferrari, they would have, uh, by that logic, would have been uh, obliged to um, assign him title priority at that stage in the season. I think Ferrari would have been much less comfortable hitching its wagon to Rubens than Michael over a season, but it may not have been anything as cynical as that, but it did raise a question mark even at the time. That's a great conspiracy theory. I hadn't even thought of that. Let's go with that one. That's brilliant. (laughs) On lap 52, so we've skipped forward a bit here, Coulthard pitted from the lead, which he would obviously end up regretting, leaving Raikkonen out front with Fissi Keller now up to second, and he'd not been in since that stop behind the safety car. Fissy then took the lead on lap 54 when Raikkonen slid wide at the downhill left-hander Magulho towards the end of the lap. So Gary, before we get into all the madness that's about to unfold, just looking at this point in isolation, assuming the race was going to go the full distance, what was the plan for the remainder of Fissy Keller's race? And what sort of result did you think Jordan was really in the hunt for at this point? Well, I think we could have got to, with the conditions that we had and the safety cars that we had and all that sort of stuff, I think we could have got to lap 62, 64, somewhere like that from memory. Um, and the, the 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 plan was to go as far as possible because the conditions were still not uh, anything too exciting. So just go as far as you could do. And then if you have, you have to pit and fill up or put fuel in it to get to the end of the race, um, try to plan that with a you know change of tires as well, whether it be onto slicks because it's dried up or another set of the enters. But um, it was just to sort of keep on, you know, going around and round and round as far as you could get to and, and see what would unfold. We we thought at that point in time, you know, we were probably going to be heading for a, a top six uh, sort of area, to be honest, if, if the rest had started to come on strong to us. 
and we had a pit. But um, you know, we'd we'd hoped we were we were looking at podium comp- competition, but it wasn't one of those things you debated. I mean, every lap was was nerve wracking because you were trying to make decisions all the time as to what you would think about doing. Um, and I have to say, you know, Pat Fizzy on the back because he drove an immaculate race of uh, you know staying out of trouble basically, which was really really very important because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what your strategy is. If you don't make it to the, in this case, the red flag or the checkered flag, it's all it's all just such a waste. Yeah, I remember at one point as um, Fissy was, you, you talk about how well judged his drive was. At one point, um, Rob was obviously getting a bit concerned that he he wasn't going very quickly, and um, yeah, I remember him saying, uh, "Fissy, Ralph is driving faster than you." <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean it was one of those it was one of those sort of situations where because of, you know Fizzy was focusing on his own race, we tried to keep we tried to keep him informed all the time of what others were doing because it was it was more or less you know that was that was what was happening behind you. They might be you know 10, 15 seconds behind you or in front of you, but the difference in lap times was enormous between one car and another. So it was a matter of trying to keep people informed, and I think that was just a call to say that Ralph's driving quicker than you, meaning that you know Ralph was driving quicker than him. But it was obviously uh, you know in a different part of the track at the same time, so you need to be very very careful just to make sure you took the best out of your car without any risks, because as I say, that's that's what you have to do for it to pay off. Okay, so let's get into the real madness then. Mark and Gary can correct me here if I get any of these lap numbers wrong, because even today. This is quite confusing to go back and try and work out definitively. Towards the end of what I reckon was lap 55, Weber had a massive shunt on the run up the hill towards the start finish. He called it the biggest crash of his career, which is saying something when you consider he'd flipped a Mercedes at Le Mans. And he was on, uh, he said he was on wets, but they'd worn down to slicks at that point and he just had no grip. Fitzy Keller and Raikkonen picked their way through that wreckage that was strewn across the track and Raikkonen ducked into the pits while Fissi Keller crossed the line to start lap 56. Then Fernando Alonso came steaming along under the impression that the accident that had triggered a safety car was behind him on the track, and he ploughed into a wheel that was left in the middle of the circuit, then had a massive accident of his own, which brought out the red flag. Alonso called it the worst accident of his career. He felt dizzy when he got out of the car and had some pain in his left leg, but he spent the night in hospital and only suffered bruising. He said afterwards, all my body is aching, but I was very lucky and nothing is broken. Mark, Alonso said he would have expected yellow flags all over the track if the accident was ahead of him, even under safety car conditions. Is that a suitable excuse for what he did here, or was this just inexperience on his part? Mm, Probably not so much inexperience. I think he was pushing flat out because he was on an inlap. Um, he, the, the, the win was up for grabs. He needed every last fraction of second. He was pushing like crazy. And at the same time, he was in the middle of the discussion with his team about which tyres he wanted. And I think if they'd just been, I, I can't, don't recall what, what was shown in terms of the yellow flag, if it was just worn or if they was, um, how vigorously it was being waved. But yeah, it's it's quite feasible that in that, in the, in the, in all that melee and, probably a lot of spray as well you might you might not twig that the the yellow flags actually at the, for this corner um so yeah I, 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 it was it was just one of those situations where it all came together at the worst possible time and uh we have to say this this was in the days before delta times that controlled how quickly you could drive back to the pits so 
drivers could uh, sense yeah. an advantage if you get back to the pits quickly. Uh, you could gain a lot of time. The red flag meant the race was over and Jordan and Fissy Keller thought they'd won it. Uh, there were wild celebrations in Park Ferme, made even more crazy by the Jordan catching fire when it parked up. But within a matter of minutes, those celebrations were dampened as the officials took the race result on countback from the end of lap 53 rather than 54 when Fissy Keller had passed Raikkonen. Fissy Keller called the brief feeling of thinking he'd won the race the best moment in my life after when my children were born. He said it was fantastic, amazing, but unfortunately it was no more than two minutes. I thought I'd won the race and I still think I am the winner. On the podium, Raikkonen took to the top step and McLaren boss Ron Dennis offered commiserations and admiration to Jordan and praised the team's sporting behaviour after the race. So Gary, we'll, we'll come in a moment to how the result got changed days later, but take us back to these moments straight after the red flag. Eddie has said that he asked you to check multiple times how many times Fissy crossed the line before the race was stopped. How sure were you in these minutes, in all this chaos just afterwards, how sure were you that Fissy Keller was the real winner of this race? And how did everybody at Jordan actually learn that it was going to be Raikkonen who was declared the winner on the day? Well, you know, we, we'd followed the race pretty closely. <clears throat> and um, the way the rules are, it, it, you know, it's the count back, the two laps count back. Fissy Keller, as you said earlier, Raikkonen made a mistake uh, at the end of, Lap fifty, coming up to the end of lap fifty-three, and Fizzy had passed him, and Fizzy led across the the start line, started lap fifty-four in the lead. Um, he came around and he went across the start line in the lead at lap fifty-five, and the race got red flag like uh, I don't know one second, two seconds, or something just after that uh, him passing the start finish line. So he had, you know, as far as I could see, he had done his bet. He was in the lead on the on the monitor. Um, the the count back was taken on the monitor and all things were, were equal so I turned away from the monitor and Louise Goodman came up from she was doing a pit report from ITV and she said to me oh um, are you happy with second that was a great race and I thought second I'm not quite sure well, uh, I thought I think we won the race and she said oh no it's gone up on the monitor you're second and I thought well you know that's not too bad um, second's a pretty decent result for uh, for our team, so I thought that's not too bad. But I said, I'm sorry, but I, you know, genuinely, I don't understand that because, as far as I can see, we 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 won the race. So we had a few debates about it, um, you know, between Rob, myself, Eddie, and we all, you know, we all genuinely believed we had won the race. But what do you do? You know, the, the end result is the FIA define it, and um, it's done and dusted, and we're down at the at the um, podium. And it's it's you know it's going to be second position. So again, as I said, at that point in time, you sort of think, well, that's pretty good. Um, bit disappointing because I don't really quite understand how we've gone from winning the race to to being second. Because as far as I can see, in the laps we've led and the way the monitor was when I left it, you know, we we had won the race. So I have to think about this one a little bit deeper. And Mark, as we mentioned, you had to write a big analysis of this race, which I now actually remember reading on my uh, my supermarket lunch break on uh, the Thursday when it came out. But when you were writing it Sunday night, how sure were you that the right man had been given the trophy on the podium? I, I trusted that the, the FIA diamond system had got it right, yes. So, so the question was the, 
as you say, the number of laps each had completed. So just just before the stoppage, Kimi had understeered wide at uh, the bottom of the hill, and that that what Fissy was able to take advantage of, and he passed him. So there was no question Fissy was in the lead, and Kimi then pitted and rejoined still second. And then about the same time, Weber and Alonso had their, their crash and the red flags came out. So Fissy had been leading on the roads, but the, the, the reason the results were thrown into disarray was how slowly the conditions had forced Fissy as the leader to cover the last sector of his last lap. Um, and it caused the system to momentarily assume he's stopped because if, 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 you, if you're overdue by too long, the, the system will just say stopped. And then as he eventually cross it, it then comes up with the, the actual um, sector time but it it's that led it to say only a certain number of laps had been completed of the race when actually it was that number plus one because fissy hadn't actually stopped he was still going the system had just assumed he'd stopped in that uh, brief window of time where the system assumed he'd stopped because the sector time is overdue and then correcting itself but but it gave a false number in that little moment of time of how many laps are being completed in the race which changed who was leading when you backdated it two laps before the red flag which is how the regs of the time determined how the results was called so we had back then very much more basic data at our disposal than than now and yeah i assume the fia had called it right the, the question was on which part the track he was on past the start finish line or not at the moment the red flag was first shown and Sod's law said the timing system was right in the middle of recalculating everything in, in, in that very moment. Michael Schumacher made an interesting point on German TV afterwards, saying that declaring the race at 53 laps meant the race fell one lap short of the 75% distance required to award full points. This was obviously Michael thinking that if Raikkonen was the winner, it would be handy for Ferrari if Kimi only picked up five points for the win. Schumacher went on to say... If the FIA say more laps were raced, then they must declare Fissy Keller the winner. It will be interesting to see how they explain this. Three days after the race, the FIA said it had received evidence contrary to the information supplied by the timekeepers at the Brazilian Grand Prix that car number 11, Fissy Keller, had started its 56th lap before the race was stopped. The FIA said it would review the data on the Friday after the race. Jordan seemed very confident that this new evidence was strong and even McLaren released a short statement ahead of the review saying if the timekeepers are proven to have made a mistake then any subsequent adjustment of the race result would be understandable. Eddie Jordan explained in his book how Jordan discovered this evidence and Gary can let us know how accurate this story is. Eddie said, back at the factory, Mark Cormican, our excellent IT guy, had devised a way of downloading the timing pages during the race. We put the relevant information on a CD and sent it to Charlie Whiting. There was now no doubt about the result. So Gary, is that how you remember us getting to this point where finally there was some evidence for the FIA to consider? Um, not quite, no. <laughs> um, it's true in the fact that Mark did, you know, did... Uh, take a picture of the timing and was able to do that, but for a different reason. Um, on the way back on the flight from Brazil, you know, sort of doing a bit of soul searching and trying to find out what really happened. And Eddie was there with us on the flight. So, you know, we came up with a solution that we had what we, what we thought, you know, done was one was win the race. And there was no way that we, we didn't. Um, we got back to the office the next morning and, 
I went into the office to Eddie to, to have a chat again with him because obviously we were all a bit disappointed with this end result and what could we do. And the phone rang um, and uh, Eddie, Eddie's office and we, uh, the phone rang and it was uh, Mr. Eccleston. And um, his first words to, to Eddie were, Jordan, you won that race yesterday. So Eddie, Eddie chatted to him for a minute or two and said, well, you know, chat to Gary about it and see. Uh, so he passed the phone on to me. Bernie and I had a little chat, and you know, as far as I was concerned, I said to him, "Look, this is what happened," and he said, "Yeah, that's right." Um, and they said, "Leave it with me; I'll sort it." So the phone hung the phone up. The next phone call we had five minutes later was Charlie, and um, what he said had happened was the fact that the timing system went put the uh, automatically did the, the the lap count back, and uh, Charlie Charlie asked in for another one because he didn't realized the timing system did it automatically so that's where the extra lap came from well that's right wrong or indifferent i have no real idea but at the end of the day charlie agreed at that point in time that they we had won the race um we had to put together whatever evidence we had and then we went to the um the appeal um and you know we got through and and uh whatever it was seven days later we'd, we'd uh, been declared the winner of the brazilian grand prix Yep, sure enough, on the Friday after the race, the investigation took place and Fissy Keller was declared the winner and the trophy would be handed over by Raikkonen and McLaren in a presentation on the grid ahead of the San Marino Grand Prix weekend at Imola. Fissy Keller said, When the evidence was examined, we knew it was true. I'm still disappointed that I didn't have my moment at the top of the podium, but I am pleased it is clear now that I've won my first Grand Prix. It's still a win that will go down in history, and I got there in difficult conditions in a car that is not a winning one. Eddie Jordan said he was grateful the result was overturned, even if it was a shame Jordan didn't get to celebrate it properly. McLaren was satisfied with the outcome, with Ron Dennis saying, the evidence presented leaves no doubt that Giancarlo and Jordan are the winners, and I'm pleased that any confusion has now been cleared up. And he shared Jordan's frustration that they didn't get to celebrate on the podium. Remarkably, though, in one of... Uh, Fissy Keller's TV interviews after the decision was announced Fissy said that now he was a race winner in F1 it was very important for his future that he tried to find a drive in one of the top teams Eddie said in his book that it was unfortunate that the win didn't convince Fissy to stay and he added I think he had made his mind up early that he was treading water and that he was looking for an alternative he was determined to go Gary when you've had to wait almost a week to find out that you've won a race with Giancarlo, was it then a bit of a kick in the teeth for him to bring this to the surface in amongst all the celebrations, effectively? Um, well, it wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, I'd sat in the office with Eddie and Fizzikella trying to convince Fizzy to drive for us for nothing in 2003. So, you know, he was he was getting paid on on performance, um, but the car the car you know wasn't wasn't able to perform. So. He was on a, a sort of hiding to nothing by staying with us in a way financially, because the chances of him doing getting on, on the podium or scoring points was was fairly remote, and he knew that immediately. That, you know, we tested the car because we you know, we just didn't have the infrastructure to put it together uh, to build a, as good a car as what he was capable of driving. And I think Brazil showed one thing that if you give him an opportunity, he could do the job, um, and that's what he was looking for was that opportunity with another team that might you know pay him a few bucks to to drive for them so it didn't really hurt me that he was saying that sort of stuff because I knew it within myself that that 
you know, that's what a racing driver has to do. Look forward. You can't look backwards. We'll leave it there then for Brazil 2003. It's a, it's a bonkers weekend for F1. And, uh, and of course, who doesn't love a Jordan victory? Thanks to Mark and Gary for their insight from the weekend. They'll be back later in the series to answer your questions in one of our series finale episodes. So make sure you get your questions in nice and early for that by using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter, emailing BringBackV10s at the-race.com or by submitting a five-star podcast review if you think we deserve it. The questions aren't completely decided on a first-come, first-served basis, but it doesn't do your chances any harm to get them in sooner rather than later. Check out the-race.com forward slash members club if you're interested in getting early access to ad-free versions of our new episodes and exclusive podcasts with Gary, as well as many other benefits. Next time, we're stepping back to the early 1990s and revisiting one of the most infamous teams in F1 history. It'll be the disastrous story of Andrea Moda, which surely makes a case for being one of the worst teams to ever qualify for a race in F1. Mm-hmm.